Uh, the idea of the sermon, uh, I'll just say those who know grace, uh, they give. It's, it's pretty, we, we were talking about this in Sunday school, and what I was saying is, you know, there's a, uh, in, in how, many, how many are in uh, Explore the Bible? How many did the lesson in John today? Okay, so quite a few of us did the lesson in John. So the lesson in John, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he was, he was really calling them out for being hypocrites. And he said, you guys have, and Jake taught our lesson today, and, and Holly taught too, so they had like a couple's lesson thing going on today. But what he was saying was, you know, you guys have the law that Moses gave you. And one of those laws was, don't kill. And here you guys are trying to murder me. Uh, he said, you're, you're getting on to me for breaking the law, but you guys are breaking the law because you're trying to kill me. And he was, he was calling them hypocrites. And he was basically saying, you guys look righteous on the outside, but on the inside, you're lawbreakers. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing that kind of brought up in my mind as we were sitting there, and I told the guys, I said, you know, it's, it's something about real Christianity. It's something about real, like what this really is about is not about you coming to church and trying very hard to be good in your own strength. And how many people, uh, you know, we will sometimes say, you know, at a church, the, the, the front door is small and the back door is really wide because it just seems like so many people are just, are just leaving. I wonder why people do that. I think one of the reasons is, is that if you try to live the Christian life in your own strength, with your old desires still in play, uh, you can't do it. Like, it's impossible to live the, the Christian life without a changed heart. And there have been many people that have tried to live the Christian life without a changed heart because they say, that looks good. Uh, it looks like that person who's a Christian and goes to church has a lot of friends, and their life seems to be going better, and they seem to have joy even in bad circumstances. I want that for myself, but they they don't come to Christ trying to give their life to Christ. They come to Christ because they want something. It's still selfish. And that's just not the way Christianity works. The way Christianity works is you hear the message, you need Jesus. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And then something happens whenever you believe that Jesus is that Savior. What the Bible says happens is your heart of stone, which is cold and hard towards the things of God and doesn't desire the things of God, your stone-cold heart is taken out, and you get a heart of flesh that's tender and sensitive to the things of God. And what that new heart does is it causes you to walk in the ways of God, or at the very least, it causes you to desire to walk in the ways of God. And I don't know anybody in this room, and I'd like to meet you if you're able to always do what God wants, all right? I don't think I've ever met anybody that was able to do that, uh, except Jesus, so yes, we're still sinners, we're still battling with the flesh, but the difference for true believers is that God has given us a, a new heart. Now we've still got that flesh in there, but we've also got the Spirit. And so when we're up here preaching, or Adelaide did a good job sharing her testimony, and, and, I, and I just noticed that when people are up here telling the story of how God has changed their life, I can see it even on your faces resonating uh, with those who love God, God, who are called according to His purposes. And I trust that as we go through these two chapters, talking about financial giving, that maybe, uh, you know, I told the guys, I said, I trust that whenever I get up here and talk about the hard things of the faith, 
that those people who have that changed heart, they like it. It's hard to hear it, and it, and it hits us in a way where we're reminded of just how much grace we need. I love that song, Scandal of Grace. And when I sing that bridge, I say, it's all because of you, Jesus. It's all because of you, Jesus. It just reminds me, I have no right to stand up here and preach. I have no right to stand up here and lead the worship. We have no right to God's uh, forgiveness. There's no right to it. It's all because of grace. It's all because of what God has done that we did not deserve. It's all mercy and grace. So we have this changed heart and when we hear these very difficult things in the messages like about giving money and financial stewardship, I'm, I'm trusting that because God has changed your heart, this is something you desire and you need the encouragement to live it out. I need the encouragement to live it out. The greatest blessing that God's ever given me is to be a preacher. And some of you Sunday school teachers and other preachers know this. When do you really learn it? when you study it and when you have to teach it. it. Because it becomes a part of you at that point, right? That's a blessing that God gives to us who are teachers. And so I was listening, uh, as I was getting ready for this message this, earlier this week. Uh, no, I guess it wasn't. I, I, whenever I took Torby. Oh, Torby got her helmet off today, or, or Thursday or whatever. So she's back to the big giant bows. So we're, we're doing that again. Uh, but I, So Torby, though, I, I took her to the to the Cook Hospital, and uh, she's not a very good conversationalist whenever you're in the car. So I was listening to a sermon, and I was listening to a sermon on this passage by, by a preacher, and I won't tell you the preacher, or because anyway, it doesn't really matter, but his story was that he told, it really just got me thinking, was he said that he was going to visit a relative who goes to a large megachurch. This is a big church that has two services, and maybe you're familiar with your kids who go to churches like this. Uh, the congregation was large, and they had split their church up into two different services. One service was con uh, traditional service, and, he said, and, then the, and then they had a Sunday school hour, and then they had a contemporary service later in the morning. So he said, I just went to all of it. He said, I sat through the same sermon. He said, the sermon in the traditional and the contemporary was the same, but I went and sat through all three of the things that they were doing that morning uh, there while I was there visiting my relative in this other town. He was telling his, his congregation. And he said, so I went to the traditional service, and they had a choir up there, and they were singing out of hymn books, and the preacher had on a tie. I don't have a tie on right now because I'm a I need to lose some weight to get back into my dress clothes. So if you're wondering, why is Chad dressing so casual? It's because these pants fit. All right, so that's, uh, sometimes it's just pragmatism. So, so hey, welcome to the contemporary service. <laughs> your, your pastor needs to drop about 10 pounds. Uh, then we'll be back to the traditional. So, uh, but we did sing a lot of hymns today, so I'm sure we're all confused. Um, but he said the preacher was wearing a tie. They sang. He preached a good, uh, encouraging message to the saints. And then they took the offering up towards the end of the service. He said by the time the plate got back to the, the back of the church, he said it was full. Then I went to Sunday school, came to the contemporary service, pastor took off his tie, they, had a, they turned off all the lights, they had a band on the stage playing very loudly, the band was singing, and the people were watching. They heard the same sermon, then they took up the offering. He said, I was sitting in the back again, and by the time the plate got back to me, it was still empty. He said, now the earlier service was full of older folks, um, 
And he kind of made the connection between generations. He said the, the ones who didn't sing were also the ones who didn't give, and the ones who sang were the ones who give. And I was thinking, I don't know. I, it's so hard to figure out why was that happening in this church that he went to. And I guess I would also say, I think it's a really bad idea to split your church up based on musical preferences. I just have never thought that was wise, all right? Uh, if there's one thing young people need, it's older people. And if it's one thing older people need, it's younger people, right? We need each other. I mean, it would be so silly like to cut the body in half just because of something as arbitrary and silly as musical preference. I mean, you know, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't really matter what kind of music you like. Um, because really in church, your preferences don't matter. Right? We actually come here to lay down our preferences and give deference, right? So if I like old, if I, I mean, you think I just love singing songs written in the 1800s? Well, I do actually. All right, but but uh, I know some of you don't. But I, I, because I, I say this about myself, I like good music. You know, and it's not Fanny Crosby's fault that she was writing songs in the 1880s. Okay, she, it wasn't her fault when she was born, so you're not allowed to not like her songs because of how, when she was born. That would be like me being mad at you for being born in the 60s instead of the 70s. It's silly. So, so we try to sing the songs. I try to, here's what I, what I try to lead the song. I try to lead the song so if Fanny was here this morning, she would say, that's, that's the way I heard it in my head. That's, the, that's, what, I was, that's what I was thinking. You know, we, so we'll sing a song with, with honor given to the time period, but, but it's a good song. Uh, there's no reason to stop singing that song or the older songs that we, that we sung today. But also we sang a song that's just a couple of years old. We sang that song, Scandal of Grace, which is also really, has a really good song and it's, it's really, really touching. So we don't, if you, if you ever took uh, the, the class music, what was it called? Music appreciation? That's, what they, the, that's the music class that would make people take in college who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. So th- you know who you are, right? Uh, so if you took music appreciation, they never said you judged a song or judged a piece of music as being good or bad based upon how old it was. For, for some reason in the church, that's what we do. It's really, it's not fair. It doesn't make any sense. It's not wise. So, but, but here's a church that split over that. And, and when it came to what he was talking about the giving as he was preaching in this passage, he was trying to figure out why in the world did those younger people not give and why, did, why were the older people giving? And it almost seemed like the conclusion he came to was, well, older people are better. <laughs> older people are more spiritual. Well, I hope older people are more spiritual. They've been Christians longer. But what's happening here? I'm going to make a suggestion to you, all right? And we have a good mix here. Uh, I watch a lot of churches. I love how after COVID, everybody's church is on YouTube. So I can go and see all my friends on Sunday afternoons or Mondays. I go see what all my buddies were preaching and look at all the churches and everything. I see some churches, it's all white hair. White hair. I see some churches, it's all younger people. What I love about our church is we have a good mix. We have a good mix of all different ages here. Um, but let me, so, so some of you have memories that, we, that younger people don't have. I have memories that you, people younger than me don't have. But here's what I'm going to say, why you would have an older generation more faithful to be giving in the church than younger generations. It's because they were taught to do it. They were taught, they were taught how to give. It was, a, it was a point of emphasis in the church did you know they used to have a meeting on Sunday nights before church and before choir called Training Union where they trained people how to be Christians? What is that? What a novel idea. 
discipleship, where you actually train people to you actually do what Jesus said to do. How many went to something called training union? I actually, I'm actually old enough to have gone to training union. By then, though, they didn't call it training union. They called it family ties, which is really interesting. They were trying to include us in the family. Uh, so, so we had training union. They'd called it family ties. There's no doubt that traditionalists, will call traditionalists the generation older than baby boomers or generations, uh, and baby boomers do give more money. Uh, the baby boomers and traditionalists tend to have most of the wealth. They say that the baby boomers have something like 70% of the disposable income in the United States. That's where the wealth is. But my generation, which is Generation X, and the millennials, we call the millennials, then you have Generation Z, kind of lump those together. They're, they're somewhat similar. We call those the emerging generations, the, the people that are kind of coming into their 30s now and younger. Uh, you know, they also are generous, and they give. They have a heart to give. But do you know what, when we think, oh, those older people give so well and all this, do you know what the average giving, no matter what the age is in, America, in the United States is to charities? The average amount given is $2,000. Think about that. That's what, if you just say, how much are the most generous people giving, the people that give, the average giving is $2,000. Now, I'm just telling you, most Americans in the church make more than $20,000. Okay, most household incomes are, that's a household, by the way, not just an individual. But that would be well under a tithe. So, I started studying this uh, and, and looking into this, and I was going to all these websites that talk about giving and the generations and charity and all those sorts of things. And what I learned is we might think of one generation being a lot more charitable than the others, but they're really not. It's just some generations have more money than other generations have, but really none of them are just this fantastically charitable generation. But I will tell you that in the church, I think there, were some, there are some generations that were taught to prioritize financial stewardship, they were taught that this is an important aspect of your faith, and there have been generations that, are, that have not been taught that in the church. There have been many that were taught that by their parents and other relatives, but they were not taught that in the church. Now, why is this? Why is this? Why is it that when we started looking three, three or so years ago at having to have a new building, why is it that people were saying, you know what, we should have done this 10 years ago? because we've lost so many good givers to death. Why is it that we're having to say that? That's pitiful, okay? We, we should not say that. Why are we having to say that? Because we haven't done the training and discipleship of these younger generations. Those who know grace give, but they have to be taught. It's, the, the, you know, you, you, it's a lot of Christianity that just requires training. That's why you have to have a teacher. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is learning. Okay, but here's what happened in the church. There was a shift that took place in my lifetime that was really uh, done by the baby boomer generation of pastors where churches began to be seeker-sensitive and we call that the attractional model. So what happened is that changed the way we thought about discipleship and especially changed the way that churches thought about the pulpit ministry. So what is the pastor supposed to be doing when he's in the pulpit? Well, that idea changed in the 80s and 90s 
And we could, there's a lot of reasons why it changed. I'm just telling you that it did. We could talk about why after the church because we would all have different perspectives on that. But basically, the church began to view the purpose of the service. And I'm talking about Big Eva, Big Evangelical Church, like just as a, if we lump all that together. I'm making generalizations here, but they're sometimes helpful. So the church the, at large thought the purpose of the service is to be evangelistic. And so the churches began to view, and churches that were really growing numerically said, we need the Sunday morning service to be seen as existing for the lost person, not the saved person. That the purpose of the church service was not for the, the members, but it was for those that weren't members yet. Now, how we, we all are familiar with that because that shift took place here in the last 30 years or so. Uh, and by the way, a seeker-sensitive service is nothing new. There have been evangelistic services throughout the history of the church. So great preachers like Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher in England, his Sunday night services were for the seekers. They were the evangelistic services. That's where the sermon would be urging people to come to Christ. So there's nothing new to have an evangelistic service. Sunday school was considered to be an evangelistic outreach tool of the church. It began as, we need to teach these kids to read because they're all working in factories. Let's get them in here on Sunday and we'll teach them because they need to know how to read the Bible. And then as the Industrial Revolution kind of moved away from child labor, the purpose of Sunday school began to be more or less evangelistic. But it was a new thing just relatively recently for the Sunday, night, for the Sunday morning service to be considered the evangelistic service. And so when you gear your church service for people that don't know the Lord, that don't know the Bible, you really try to stay away from certain things. So churches began to avoid talking about certain things. So this, is, this began to happen in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. So that, that is a long time ago, okay? One of the things that, that was not to be talked about from the pulpit, if you went to the church growth conferences, they would say, don't talk about giving from the pulpit, there's too many hucksters out there on television that are begging for money to buy jet airplanes and they're not telling the truth and you don't want to look like one of those guys. So the reaction to that was don't talk about money, don't talk about stewardship, don't talk about discipline, don't talk about discipleship, don't talk about expectations of church membership. In fact, maybe we don't even need to have church membership. We don't want people to feel judged. We don't want there to be some who are members and some who are not members. We just need to maybe do away with it all. We don't want people feeling judged, so let's talk about felt needs. We don't want people to feel out of place if we all get out Bibles and, talk, and, and read them and the people can't find the, 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 the verses in their Bibles because they don't know how to use their Bible. Let's not take out our Bibles. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable. People might feel uncomfortable if we ask them to pray out loud. So let's not pray out loud. Well, then you develop a whole generation of people that don't feel comfortable praying out loud. Why are there nobody going to prayer meeting? Because people are scared. This is what we've created. Let's turn up the praise band so people don't have to sing loudly. Let's make them feel like they're at a pop concert with catchy lyrics. Let's not sing all those dry theological hymns with all the words. People don't know how those old songs go. They're going to feel uncomfortable. You know, in fact, people feel uncomfortable singing anyway, so we should just let them stand there and watch. And let's turn off all the lights so that they feel anonymous. 
and let's take out the pews and put in theater seats. That way people won't feel like their space is being encroached upon. And they're used to going to the movies and sitting in seats, but these pews seem weird and old-fashioned. The goal of this service is to get people to come and then to come back again and again and again. Well, this is, this is what we were taught, or this became the prevailing thought, and it makes perfect sense. And we can appreciate good things about that model. There were some good things about it, about being inclusive, about showing hospitality, about loving your neighbor and not making them feel out of place and making sure that they feel loved when they come into your house of worship. But what happens when you grow a church in that way? Well, we're seeing the effects now, right? The proof always comes out in the pudding. You give it enough time, you can see the results. And now we've got a church, and I'm talking about big evangelical, but it's been influenced in that way, and we have churches where a few, a few read the Bible, a few know how to read the Bible or know anything about it, a few feel confident to pray out loud, a few feel confident to share the gospel, a few feel confident to counsel others using the Bible, Few take responsibility for caring for the souls of others. Few give. Few prioritize worship attendance. But you know what? They've got good coffee, slick music. Everybody feels comfortable. Everybody thinks they're just fine with the Lord. And it might just be that we're comforting everybody right to hell. Listen to these facts. I went to a website called CDF Capital. It's a, they, they do church funding. These were some facts they had amassed about giving. 247 million Christians identify, Americans identify as Christian. 240, that's, that's not half the country, but that's close getting approaching that figure. But out of the 247 million people who say they're Christians, how many, would, how many million would you say tithe? Say they tithe. 1.5 million say that they tithe. Only about 5% of churchgoers in an average church tithe. I think we're higher than that. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I would, I would imagine we're higher. Uh, tithers are 40% less likely to owe significant death. De- uh, debt. <laughs> Y'all are still going to die even if you tithe. But uh, <laughs> But here's the deal. When Christians get serious about their giving... They often find that they're more responsible with 90% of what they have than they were with 100%. It's just, that's just the reality, okay? When you've got a little bit less, you think more carefully about how to spend it. Uh, statistics show that uh, tithers are less likely to be overdue on credit card payments, and 28%, almost 30% are debt-free. If every Christian who said they were a Christian tithed, there would be 165 billion additional dollars available to the church. One writer said, here's what we could do with the money. He said, uh, if everybody would just give the 10%, you have the 165 extra billion dollars. He said, 25 billion could be used per year to relieve global hunger and eliminate death from preventable diseases within five years. So in five years, you could eliminate preventable disease, and you could feed the entire world if the church would tithe. Okay, and we're just talking about Americans here. You could actually feed the entire world and cure preventable diseases with 25, that extra $25 billion a year. $15 billion could be used to sur- solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where a majority of the people live on less than $1 a day. $12 billion, the church worldwide could end illiteracy. One billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. And 100 to 110 billion would be left over for additional ministry expansion. You could currently fund all the mission work with one billion dollars per year. 
And then you'd have 100 billion to expand the, the, the ministry. Did you know that people who make less are more likely to tithe than someone who makes a people that give 20 or that make 20,000 a year are eight times more likely to tithe than someone who makes 75,000 or more? Now, they said, why, why are the poor more generous? It tends to be that the poor in our, in our society are closer to the needs. And so it makes them more generous than those who, as they get into upper... That's one kind of great thing about living here in Olney. We live in such a small community that we, no matter really what your, your, how much money you make, you rub el- elbows with everybody. You rub in elbows with people that don't make as much as you, and you rub elbows with people that make a lot more than you. But that's not the way it is in the Metroplex. People live in communities where everybody has two cars and two golf carts. And you just, you, you know, you drive to work, you, you drive in, you put the code in, you go into the gated community, and you don't really see that there are all these incredible needs out there. But here's a statistic that will blow your mind, and then we'll hopefully get into the sermon. <laughs> there's, there's still a lot more here of what I started writing, and I didn't stop. All right, so <laughs> religious giving has fallen 50% in churches since 1990. Not in this church. Okay, in this church, God, thank God, the giving is going up. But religious giving across the United States, that's, now that's, in, that's 2016. That was 2016. It's been a while since 2016. And it said that it had fallen off 50%. So here's what I think we're dealing with. It's a formula. I think when you made a formula where you were going to reject a lot of things to make church more acceptable to visitors, you lost mission education. You lost the understanding of our denomination. You know, people love to be non-denominational, you know. We're a non-denominational. I was like, what, you don't have any convictions? I mean, I don't respect that. Tell me what you believe. I was like, you're not really, if a guy tells me he's non-denominational, I'll say, you're not non-denominational. Tell me about your church, okay? Do do you baptize adults? Yes. Can you drink beer or not? No. Okay, then you're Baptist, okay? Uh, Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. uh, uh, you, You baptize adults? Yes. Uh, are you allowed to drink beer? beer? Yes, you're a Bible church. I mean, we know, we, I can tell you, you just go through and I can tell you what you are, all right? But we, but we even drop the denomination. There's people drop that my home church is the First Baptist Church of Euless. I'm always going to call it the First Baptist Church of Euless. I don't care if they call it Cross City, all right? They drop Baptist out of it because they wanted it to be, they wanted it to be more attractive. And I guess they don't think Baptists are attractive. I think y'all are very good looking, but... But but denominational understanding was lost. The expectation of stewardship and tithing, strong congregational singing was lost. Expositional verse-by-verse preaching, which is how it should be done, was lost. The emphasis of using the Bible in one-on-one discipleship was lost. You put the best speaker up and everybody gets fed from him. Uh, That's not the way the church is supposed to work. We're supposed to be discipling one another. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and it says it right there. That my job is to equip you to minister to one another, to speak the truth to one another in love, not for me to know it all and for you just to listen. This is not necessarily the most important thing that happens every week. In some ways it is, but it, this can't be it. If this is it, we got a problem. We had 16 in prayer meeting Wednesday night, which was good, six more than we had. But why, is, why have prayer meetings fallen off? Churches have quit even having them. Why did the church quit having a prayer meeting? Because the church, when it decided to go into this, another, uh, this other mode to just try to gather a crowd, decided to be pragmatic. 
You know who the most charismatic people in our church are? All right, you know who they are? They're not the ones that wave their hands around and have looks, funny looks on their faces or swing from the rafters or whatever you would think in your mind of a charismatic. The most charismatic people in our church, the ones who are really relying upon the Holy Spirit are the ones that show up in prayer meeting because they believe that if they pray, the Spirit's gonna move. That's why we still have a prayer meeting is because we don't think that it's just all manipulating people. We believe that if something spiritual is going to happen, the Spirit's going to have to do it. Otherwise, we're just manufacturing it. So I, just studying this, I really, I really was encouraged. I know I don't sound like it, but I was encouraged because, because here's, I think, the deal. It's hard for every generation to give. You know why I think that as I was meditating on this passage? It's hard for every generation to give, and we know that because the Corinthians had a hard time giving. They knew Paul. I would say, oh, man, a church, if Paul came to your church and preached, man, everybody be tithing. Nuh-uh. They had a hard time giving just like we do. They had to be encouraged to give. They had to be exhorted to give. They had to be taught how to give. They needed to be, t- to be told in the first century, you need to put your money where your mouth is. And so traditionalists and boomers and Generation X and Generation Z and millennials and alpha and whatever else comes next, the alphabet, we all need to be challenged, and we need to be, say, listen, we're going to study God's Word about giving. We're going to let the Word of God form us, because that's how the Spirit does it. That's how we're going to become a strong giving church, because we love God. Not because we want to build a building, not because we want to do all this stuff with the money, but because we love God, and we love His Word. So Paul tells us in chapter 8 about the giving of the Macedonians. He tells the Corinthians, I should say. And we're lucky enough to have their letter. He tells the Corinthians about the giving of the Macedonians. They were inspired by the Corinthians because the Corinthians had made a big pledge to give, but then the Corinthians didn't give, but the Macedonians had. So Paul comes back to them and says, listen, these guys are giving like crazy because you said you were going to give, and you guys need to give even more. (laughs) So we learned that the Macedonians were oppressed, they were poor, but they gave generously. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to the apostles. So that's amazing, right? That's what we need to do. First, give yourself to the Lord, then give yourself to each other. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what they did. They obeyed the great commandment, and it made them generous. And so he said, then we sent Titus back to you because we wanted you to be giving just like these Macedonians. Then look there in chapter 8, verse 7. At the very end, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace. What does excel mean? The word in Greek means abound or overflow. Go beyond. I want you, Corinthians, to go beyond what is expected in giving. This word uh, there that's used there is the same word that was used to describe the, the baskets that were overflowing after Jesus fed the multitudes. Remember, they had all that food left over. The food was overflowing and abounding, even after it took two loaves and fishes, uh, loaves and fishes, and what is it, two loaves and two fish and five loaves, and fed the, the whole 5,000. Did I get that right? Okay. <clears throat> Some of you Bible scholars, I'm going to run it by you here. Uh, <laughs> Burma's like so authoritative. She's like, I know exactly how many it was. <laughs> And so then he expounds on it. He says, excel in this act of grace. Then that's our verses are going to, so we have two two illustrations of giving in verses eight and nine. Okay, so we're going to look at that. Then there's two important parts of giving, the desire and the act, that's that's verses 10 through 12. And then in um, 13 through 15, 
we see two concerns of Paul's, that those in poverty and those in plenty. So let's go through this really quickly. Two illustrations of giving. The first one's the Macedonians. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but I'm telling you to excel in giving because it's going to prove your earnestness. It's going to prove, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So when you're compared to the Macedonians and you do what they've done, we'll know that you are earnest and you will know that you are earnest. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might be rich. So we have two illustrations. The first is the Macedonians, and the second one is Jesus. Think about the Macedonians, a great example of giving out of their poverty. And then think of the greatest example for giving you can even think of, and that is your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was rich. Jesus came from a place where they paved the streets with gold, and he became poor. You know, think about little Torby coming to us and and, and we, she had all these borrowed things, you know, we, we, we kind of got her really suddenly, and so people just brought us a bunch of borrowed things, because she didn't have anything. But think about Jesus, even more so. When Jesus came, he didn't have a baby bed. He had to borrow a, a feed trough. He had no house. He had no possessions. He had nowhere to lay his head. The one thing of value that he had was a seamless garment. That was probably given to him. He had nowhere to run. He had nowhere to take refuge other than his heavenly father. And he was executed like a poor, worthless criminal in the Roman Empire. And then he was laid in a borrowed tomb. He was 100% emptied, spent, and given for you. That's the kind of giving we're to emulate. Not saying, oh, how much do I have to give to the church? Come on. Is that really how Christian acts? Why are we so stingy? If our heart's been changed, if this is our Savior and our example... Think about whether your attitude toward giving matches that one. Is that not what Paul's doing? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't, I don't expect you to give. I don't expect you to be generous. If you're not a member of this church, if you're visiting with us and you're not a believer, when we pass that plate, whether we're standing up or sitting down, I don't expect you to put anything in it. You're our guest, and I I don't expect guests kind of miles to pay for the food or whatever else. But if if we're part of the body here, That's the expectation that we have of one another. It's in our covenant. That's our leader, Jesus Christ. That's your Lord. Have you grabbed your cross and taken off after him? People carrying crosses don't get to make demands. They don't offer the agenda. But we want everyone to know the richness of the forgiveness of Jesus. We want everyone to know eternal life. And we can tell people about that, and we can know it ourselves because Jesus gave, because he gave it all. And so those of us that follow Jesus, we give, because it's how we become like him. Jesus gave it all. When we become generous and we lay down our life, which is represented by our money, and by other things, but, but a lot of it's based upon our security and our money, we're responding to that call the way Jesus did, that ultimate call to give. Okay, then we look at the next set of verses here, uh, verses 10 through 12. Two important parts of giving, the desire and the act. Look at verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgments. We're going quickly here. I give, so listen fast. I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to desire it. A year ago, you guys wanted to give. You, had, you started to do this. You were beginning to want to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, 
not according to what he does not have. So where does the giving start? On the inside. You have a desire. You're ready to give because your heart's been changed. What is God looking for in your giving? He's not looking on the outside. He's looking on the inside. What is your heart desire? You can give a lot of money, but if your heart's not in the right place, no credit in heaven. Okay? So ask yourself always when you go online to make a gift or when you write the check, why are you giving? And the answer is, I'm giving because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and my heart's been changed by the gospel. It's the heart behind it that makes it acceptable and pleasing to God. Your cheerfulness, your love for Christ, your love for his people, that's what it represents when you give. So if you have the desire that's pure, then you need to follow up on the act of giving. You need to actually give. You don't, it's not, it doesn't complete it if you just want to give. You actually have to follow through. It doesn't, when you say, oh, I'll pray for you, that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean anything. What counts when you actually pray for them? Okay? So have the desire to do it, which is good, pure, but then also follow through with the act. And a lot of times, that's a good example of the prayer. You know what we should do? We should just stop and pray. It won't take that long. Take like five seconds. Just pray for them. All right? So the act here of giving is proportionate to what you have. So it's not all equal uh, giving, but it's equal sacrifice. So that's verses 10 through 12. We've got the desire, and then we have the act. So he says, you've got a desire to give, and I'm preaching to Christians who know they need to be giving. What I'm telling you to do is follow up. Follow up by truly giving. And the best way to do that is when you get your paycheck, write the tithe check when? First. If you write that tithe check last, you might not get around to writing that check. But if you say, you know what, this, this off the top belongs to God, then I'm going to give it like that. That's how, if you're trying to build up that muscle of giving, that's what you do. You say, that's, and people say, oh, you're, you're giving up this, you're giving this. No, I'm not giving up anything. It belongs to him. It's not mine. And then he mentions two concerns in verses 13 to 15. Two concerns of Paul. Those people in poverty and those people with plenty. The, the Jerusalem saints that were poor, the Macedonian saints that were poor, and the Corinthians who had plenty. Look what he says here. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness, or the word there is probably better translate balanced. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. That's a reference to manna in the book of Exodus, where because God was providing for the church, nobody had too little, nobody had too much. Everybody had, there was a balance there. You say, well, that sounds like communism. That's not communism, because communism is when a state government tries to do that. But those of us that have been changed and, and, and our hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God, we're able to share and share alike because everybody's going to still work hard. Everybody's going to still do their part, okay? And we can talk about how that works um, as, we, as we go on later in the chapter. But Paul's concerned with those in poverty, the down and out, and he's concerned with those who have plenty of money who are the up and out. And the rich people need Jesus and the poor people need Jesus, right? The poor people need God's love represented by material things. And those of us that are up and out, we need the grace and mercy of God to let us give and be sensitive to him even though we do have plenty. There are clear needs when somebody is in poverty. There's clear needs. They can't stop drinking. They can't stop doing drugs. They can't make good choices with their money. There's, uh, or somebody is, is, is sick and they've lost their income or they're disabled and they're unable to work. 
Paul was concerned about those Christians who had left everything for Jesus in Jerusalem. They were paying the price, and they, had, they needed food and clothing and shelter. But he was also concerned with these Corinthians. Their lack of generosity was its own kind of poverty. It was a spiritual problem. They were materially rich and spiritually poor. They were as needy as the Macedonians. They were as needy as the, as the church in Jerusalem. They just poor in a different way. When we sit down to help people that come into the church on Wednesday night for needs, Ron and Spencer and Lonnie or whoever, Lonnie's doing youth now, but when we sit down with these people, we don't sit down with them and say, okay, we're the people who have it all figured out. And I'll say it to them sometimes. I'll say, hey, we're all poor. We're just all poor in different ways. We all need shalom with God. We all need peace, okay, just in different ways. And so they were going to help each other. Whenever the Jerusalem church has a need, the Corinthians can help them. And then the Jerusalem church, whenever they had plenty, they were going to be able to help the Corinthians when they had need. Because those who know grace give. And we have many in this church who know grace. We don't split up the church here with different music, a generation here, a generation. We have a church that's growing in the area of giving. So after I've said all that, I want to encourage you to say, hey, we're, we're, we're not doing too bad here in this area. I don't know, we're not doing the best we can be, and I'm preaching to people that are not being faithful in this area. But if you are being faithful in this area, when I arrived at this church in 2013, the budget was just under $500,000. I think it's $589,000. And it required a weekly, uh, so we take that number of the budget, we divide that by 52, and we come up with the weekly needs. So if we receive this every week, this is how we're going to make our budget. The, the weekly needs was $9,608. This year, despite making cuts in certain areas and adding some in to build uh, for building planning and an additional 30000 for the church van, we have a very high budget. Uh, just under $660,000. It may be, I was just trying to figure that. I haven't seen the final number. We had a few numbers we had to change around a little bit. But roughly, our weekly required needs now is $12,676. So we're needing quite a bit more than we did back in 2013. All right? But the good news is that our budget giving last year was the highest I can ever remember being here. We received six. $178,710.30 in regular budget giving. That did not count $38,000 raised for the giving of the new Ford Transit van. That did not include Lottie Moon or Annie Armstrong or Mary Hill Davis or all the other special giving opportunities we had during the regular year. And it didn't include any gifts to the building fund. So if you add all those in, we're seeing tremendous giving. Okay? But to mature as a church... If it's true that only 5%, or let's say only, let's say 25% are giving generously in what we would, like a tithe or more. And, and, and the statistic that I didn't read you said, most people who tithe give more than a tithe. They give their tithe, but then when offerings come along and other giving, they, they're more generous than just with the 10% of their income, okay? And that's the thing about giving. When you give, you know, uh, you know, I was telling Emerald the other night, I was saying, you know, we can live like this. You ever, you ever, everybody do this. Just clench your hands. Does it make you feel good? Do like this. Everybody do like this. Come on. Let's just have fun. Put your dukes up. <laughs> and, then, and then just do like this. It's, it's weird, right? How, how much better that feels. But when we live like this and we're hanging on to everything, you know, it, we don't let go of anything. When we live like this, we let God put it in here. We let God take it out. And it's easier. All right? So that, that kind of like giving with the open hand. Uh, but, but if, if we were all giving like this, if we're not just relying on a few to do the heavy lifting, not equal giving, but equal sacrifice, 
Um, imagine what, what the Lord could do. Not because we'd have more money, but because we'd have transformed hearts. When you give your money, you become generous in your money giving. When you give your money, you also become generous in every other area. It has a domino effect because that's how grace works. The Bible says it's grace upon grace. It's just more, and, but he gives more grace. Whenever you are being obedient, and that's how we show that we love the Lord is we're obedient. And this is an area where we're told to do. We're told to be generous, and God loves cheerful giver. So we need to be cheerful givers. We need to be generous, extravagant givers. And at the very least, that looks like a tithe. In the New Testament, though, Jesus always goes above and beyond the law, okay? So it looks like abundance. It looks like baskets full of loaves and fish pieces, right? So let's be a church that's about that. Not this kind of church, this kind of church. God, we're giving you all we have, and we're here to receive the blessings as well. Let's pray together.